Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, boys. Um, I'm, we're ready for another fantastic podcast this afternoon, and I am smiling from ear to ear as I ask the question, what is the weather like where you are, Mike? Oh, we've got a really nice Indian summer going on down here in Wales, which was highlighted, obviously, last weekend by probably the greatest weather in 10 years for Ironman Wales, but it's managed to continue through for, for the rest of the week. So I'm sat here in shorts and a T-shirt, sweating through the window. Uh, and Ian, uh, what's it like where you are? Wonderful in Birmingham as well. Bright sunshine, shining through the window. Yeah, excellent. So, yeah, we've got the Indian summer as well. Yeah, we should make the most of this podcast because it's going to be the one time where the sun is properly shining. So uh, we'll look back on this in years to come and remember it as the sunny podcast. Yes. And it was, of course, fantastic weather uh, the weekend just gone for Ironman Wales and you know they say you get like one in five years you get the decent weather and uh, you know what the, it, I think it's always windy down there isn't it at Tembe it just depends which direction it's blowing as well how lucky you get but um, as our uh, as our honourable uh, Welshman on the show here Mike I'm going to come to you just to find out what the um, atmosphere was like down there for Ironman Wales and you know has there been much of a buzz over the weekend? It's it's a buzz for the month before, and now it seems each year the buzz seems to start earlier, last a bit longer, and just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, it's very hard right now to walk around anywhere within about a 50-mile radius of Tembe and not find an Ironman, or someone who knows an Ironman, or someone who's involved with the Ironman in some capacity. So it really does capture the whole of West Wales. Um, this year, we had the buzz of the good weather. We've had uh, lots of first-timers getting across the line this year. And obviously, um, we've had the whole Gareth Alfie Thomas scenario going on. So um, last night, no, sorry, Wednesday night, they released in, on BBC Wales the hour documentary about HIV and me, which I think is getting released nationally next week, but was a fantastic watch that I'd get everyone to watch the, this guy who was an inspiration to many of us here on the pitch. But since he hung up his boots, has been a bigger inspiration to most people than he could have ever imagined himself being on the pitch. So um, so I found out after the fact that I actually know uh, the guys who coached, the team who coached him, I know quite well, but weren't aware they kept it so secret under wraps that, that we were all in the dark about it. So um, little bits are coming to light about his journey through there which was really interesting to find out. But um, as with everything now, as with, with any place that hosts a big event, and I'm sure you know from, from the Lakeland and stuff, now we're in that post-Ironman Blues, 
everyone's a little bit down and dejected and looking for something else, which always amazes me because I tell everyone I ever work with, book something four to six weeks, two months after I am on Wales because you're going to be on a downer. You'll need something. And they never do. And it always hits this week now where there's a lot of forlorn cyclists plodding around sort of without a direction on, and without a need to train for anything. So, um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're on a post Ironman Wales come down. I know that they've opened the priority entries, obviously, have gone like hotcakes this week, so much so they've had to stop them. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah obvi- obviously, next year being the 10th anniversary, all, um, all those famous elite athletes who've done well in Ironman Wales are coming out of the woodwork for next year. Certain uh, rumours that someone not too far from us is is back on the trail next year. Is that right, Ian? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it wasn't me, so that only leaves one. Who might that be? So the the entries have filled super fast. I I, I couldn't do it this year because I had the, you know, the injury, I ruptured my hamstrings. I've had to have surgery and been out for the whole year. And I was actually entered for this year. And I was, uh, so I was just sat at home tracking all my friends that were doing it. And of course, tracking the vet forty-five to fifty category to see see what the winning time was and all that, you know, just just checking up where I would have been. But the um, uh, I entered in January two thousand and nineteen, uh, and a mate of mine who was doing it texted me. I just finished swimming, and I got a text from a mate saying there's only fifty places left for Wales, and that was in January. Um, so I got one of the, the, I was very lucky to get a place, even though I ended up didn't racing because of the injury. But that was obviously the first warning signs then that it's going to fill very, very quickly this year. Because if it was filled by January last year, you know that everybody's thinking just get in and enter as soon as it opens. And then, of course, they opened uh, entries and they email all the AWA athletes, all world athletes and the uh, people who've done it before in the previous years and stuff like that. They email those first with an entry link. And I think those people obviously share it with their friends as well. And before you know it, three quarters of the places have gone before the official entries have actually opened. So I believe they're already on the final tier, on the final quarter of the entries. Yeah, I, they are. I don't know when, were entries supposed to open this coming Monday, I think? But, yeah. Yeah, so I think it was coming Monday, but, but basically they were three quarters full before the entries have actually opened, which is, a, so they had to stop it just to make it a bit more fair for other people to get in, but... But yeah, but I got a place, so um, so I'll definitely be down there next year. Best race of the year. It's so I was chatting some people last night at the um, myself and Ian did a, a talk last night, and I was chatting some people there about it. And we we've organised a, a we organise a lot of events now through Epic Events, and I always find the best events are there's two types of events. There's an event where someone says we need to organise an event from here, so we need to plan something. So where are we going to swim, bike, and run? And you'll often get that, like a council will come to you and say, we want a triathlon in our town. We want you to organise an event from here. And then you have to look around and see what resources you've got. And then there's other places where you stand there and think, how awesome would it be to organise an event from here? And Wales is in the latter category where, you, you know, it's the best swim start in the world. The atmosphere, you know, the crowds up on, on, on the main street looking down onto the beach, the national anthem, and, and just, just the whole the course and the crowds. And just amazing. I mean, it's absolutely amazing, the atmosphere. I absolutely love the race. And I think that's the beauty of it. That you've just got the race and the venue is perfect made. People stand there and say, this will be an incredible place to organise an event from. Whereas a lot of other races... 
they, they are, uh, they've been organized off the back of, we need to organize an event from this location, right? How are we going to do it? So they start boxing things together. Where can we swim? Uh, and Ironman UK is a great race, but it's, there's a little bit of that with Ironman UK where they think, where are we going to swim? It's in Bolton. Mm, the only place we've got is Pennington Flash. It's not the best, and it's 12 miles away, but it's the only place we've got. Right, we'll use Pennington Flash. So, uh, you know, and, and this year they the, 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 um, couldn't host the bike course in Lancashire, so they had to move it to Greater Manchester. And it's always, you know, what, what's our option? You know, what, what's the best option we've got? Well, Wales is completely different to that. So, um, so yeah, I feel very lucky that we've got a place and I'm looking forward to coming back for the uh, 10th anniversary. Of course, the more difficult challenge is getting a bloody hotel room. <laughs> I think yeah. everything's filled up already. So, um, but no, I am I very much, uh, very much I think, looking forward. I think what gets harder and harder now is you get so many people going back to race the race again. Yeah. So then they formed relationships with people they've stayed with before. So they rebook with those guys and then... It just gets harder and harder. Yeah, people are just rebooking and going back and what you're saying. They just they book and I think people who are planning to race in 2020, you know, that they, they enter before the two they, they um, sign up for accommodation before the 2019 event, you know, and then just cancel their accommodation if they don't get a place. So it's um so yeah, yeah, yeah. But um And of course you got you got thousands upon thousands of fans and club members going to cheer people on. So they just swell yeah. the ranks ranks of the hotels. So yeah, I th- I'm start. I am starting to feel the pull. It's it's a good decade since my Ironman days, and um, I've been back in Wales for two years. I grew up. I spent every summer time in Tenby growing up. We had a trailer down there, and that's where our family holidays were. So um, when they started, and I was still living away, it was like, oh, cool. I might have to do that Ironman at some point. But the two years since we moved back, and having seen the whole atmosphere and the whole thing that's down here now with it, I, I think the the wheels will have to get dusted off in the next year or two and we'll get MDS out of the way and maybe, maybe focus on Tembi. And my girls as well are the three and five. And Tembi is the perfect place for that, for that age kids because the beach is just amazing. And they'll just be on the beach all day. It's absolutely stunning. So yeah. do, you, do you not fancy it next year? I'm not ruling it out. Um, because I'm coming off the back of MDS, there's a couple of other runs I fancy doing, which I might, while I've got the running legs on next year, might just try and squeeze in at the end of the season. So yes. uh, so I might just write off 2020 to some big runs mm-hmm. while, while that's there. And then dust off the goggles and the bike for, for the following year, maybe. Yeah. Ian, could you not do it as like, uh, you know, to prevent the post-Lakeland depression? Yeah. You could have a target in September, couldn't you? We should have a, a podcast race where we all do an Ironman yeah well this is the opportunity yeah it's here come back you need to get on it I've been honest Ian you sounded non-committal (laughs) (laughs) entry's open Monday there's only one tier left get on it (laughs) what time it'll it'll make some good live broadcasts anyway if we're out on the course podcasting absolutely did you have friends doing it as well Mike people you know that you're coaching or friends like yeah Dozen, dozens of friends, about a dozen or so athletes that I've been working with, a couple from a coaching point of view and a couple from um, an injury point of view. So yeah. it was a f- first Ironman for a couple of people. Um, really, really nice husband and wife I've been working with from Hereford. It was their first one and they did really well. Uh, a local athlete who's done really well in, in age group before was looking for a corner slot and missed by one. 
missed out by one place, came uh, sixth. They were looking for four. They've dropped down one, but he's missed out by one slot. So that's, that was frustrating. Um, but yeah, I probably was tracking 25 to 30 people on the day. Yeah. So, um, so and I love that Ironman event tracker now. It's just such a good yeah. thing to have. Just such a exciting thing to be able to track the whole day, watching how someone's doing and yeah. seeing where they are. It's just when that dot stops moving and they're in a transition and they don't start moving again. And then you realize there's one DNF. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was a good, good day. Yeah. Yes, I'm very much looking forward. I don't know what else I'm going to do next year, but I'm very much looking forward to Wales. That was the one race that I was definitely going to do all along. So uh, yeah, I am really looking forward to it for next year. Cool. Well, uh, moving on from Ironman Wales. Um, anything else been on your mind? Ian, have you seen anything else on social media this week that's uh, grabbed your attention? Yeah, there, there was one thing that caught my eye that was um, sort of, Partly from a sort of professional interest, but also from an athletic interest as well. Um, with Aleve joining Ironman uh, as a partner for the Ironman World Championship. So Aleve are a um, pharmaceutical company or a pharmaceutical brand, um, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, um, which to me didn't sit that well in terms of whether um, that being a sponsor for an endurance event, whether that's normalizing the use of um, painkilling medic medication um, as part of endurance sport, uh, and in particular sort of NSAIDs, which yeah, are known to uh, potentially be quite risky if taken during competition. And some of the things that were said in terms of the press release were linking it uh, its use to training and even implicitly to during competition as well. So that was a bit concerning. I think generally what I've seen on social media is most people have been reacting fairly negatively to that. So it's, a, it's been a bit of a strange decision, I think, and, and definitely seems to be more of a commercial decision than anything else. What was that exactly what you said, Ian? You said that in the, the, the press release it was encouraging people to use it in training or racing. What was the wording? Uh, the wording um, was whether during training or after the big event, these athletes need safe and effective solutions that allow them to address the muscle aches and pain that could hold them back from being their best. So to me, that's you know, <laughs> if you <laughs> basically saying this is going to help you perform better, which yeah. is just frightening, scary language for me uh, from my position in terms of, you know, promoting the use of uh, painkillers as part of a performance strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very wrong here, but with the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, there's there is um, risks and issues with like the kidneys and hyponatremia and things like that, isn't there? That's right. Yeah, I mean the, the advice is if you're going to use any painkillers during uh, performance, probably paracetamol is a safer option. Certainly not non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So, yeah, it seems a very strange choice. And yeah, if if you were going to take them on as a sponsor, it'll, if if that was going to happen, you'd definitely want to see some careful language around it about what, what would be appropriate use. And unfortunately, what we've seen is the opposite of that, it seems. Yeah, right. Okay, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, that sort of gray area of using medication and, yeah, and to facilitate performance, but also potentially as sort of a, you know, it, as that becomes normalized, do we start to look at other forms of uh, pharmaceutical enhancement for performance as well. So the, I think that was one of the two of the comments on social media that uh, people were alluding to as well, is that 
you know, this can be the thin end of the wedge in terms of, you know, if we're saying that this is okay, then what else might be okay? Yeah. Well, painkillers themselves, and you know, and maybe not non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, but painkillers themselves have been shown to be performance enhancing, haven't they, by the kind of alter perception levels, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Exercise. So they can alter yeah, there's been suggestions, yeah. Certainly anecdotal evidence uh, in rugby, athletics, uh, uh, cycling of tramadol abuse. Um, but even paracetamol, there's evidence that that can be performance enhancing, uh, particularly in uh, in warm weather, in hot conditions. Um, so, although a medication might be uh, not prohibited, doesn't necessarily mean that people can't start to think about using them as part of a performance strategy, which for me is quite concerning because you know we should only be using. Uh, pharmaceuticals and medication when uh, when there's actually a medical need for that uh, and when you've been given advice by a medical professional to do that. Yeah, Mike, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. yeah, loads and loads. So I think the overarching thing with endurance sports from the research is that any potential performance gains from non-steroidals are always mitigated by a much bigger risk of side yeah. effects. So, so that's the thing that a lot of people miss, is that potential benefits will never be better than, than, than the side effects they might offer you. Um, I think the frustrating part, like the, the actual quote, I don't disagree with. It's just that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories shouldn't be the answer to the, what that quote was. You know, there are plenty of safe and healthy and sound strategies that people should be doing. Um, the frustrating thing as well is that we seem to have spent the best part of maybe two decades trying to get everyone away from that belief yeah. of the of the uh, prophylactic, the, the sort of using them to prevent things coming on, um, yeah. medications. And in one foul swoop, you have a sponsor coming in. And we all know that whichever um, sponsor, whether it's a supplement or an energy drink or whatever, the masses will be drawn to that product because it's the main sponsor's product and it'll probably be in the freebie bags and it'll probably be on t-shirts and it'll be handed out willy-nilly around the place so it's it's the front and center shop window advertising of things that we're trying so hard to get people away from I agree exactly with what ian said about there are safer alternatives if you go in to use medication um, and that's basically the paracetamols of the world and, and the non. For the listeners, when we're talking in the UK predominantly about the non-steroidals, effectively we're talking about brand names like ibuprofen, naproxen, diclofenac. Uh, if people are, worry, are wondering which sort of medications specifically we're on about. And as we said, although although the um, the high-end side effects of things like stroke, heart attack are rare, there are evidence cases of deaths and serious illness from these things. But when it comes to the sodium and the electrolyte levels and the kidney failure issues, they're much more, much more of an issue. I, I almost sort of, I think I found a position of ease that there is, that, that where we all try to be quite purists with sport, sport is now a business. Endurance sport is no different. It doesn't shock me anymore that some of these organizers go to these people because I would pretty much guarantee that this company are the ones who offered the most money for that brand sponsorship. So so it, it, ethics, I think, in business of sport is is not something I'm worried um, I, I ever sort of try to think about too hard. It is what it is. 
but we just hope that the athletes out there, particularly those people who may be more influenced by the sponsor's message and things linked with big events like Corner, just be careful, spend a bit of time doing some reading, listen to people who perhaps know a bit more about that subject. Um, there's, there's plenty of free access journals to do with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and endurance sports. Go and have a read and see what you guys can come up with yourself as your own opinions. There's a great thread on Twitter from Lucy Gossage um, about her thoughts and the thread underneath has got some nice thoughts and some links from, from a lot of people negatively advocating for it. So that's that's quite a good thing to read up on. No, I think every major event tends to have a, a high-level medical practitioner that gives medical advice around their event. You see that with the London Marathon. I'm sure it's there for Kona as well. Uh, how they didn't turn to that person and get their advice on this before actually taking that decision is uh, quite startling for me because that would be the first thing you'd be doing if you're looking for a sponsorship from a pharmaceutical brand uh, is speak to that person, I would think. Um, maybe it was, uh, you don't ask the question if you don't want to hear the answer, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah or again, a lot of the time with some medical, you know, if you don't give us the answer we want, we maybe we'll find someone else. Yeah. Uh, we can't. We can't second guess whether that's the case in this, no, in this no. scenario, and, and, it, and it's wrong of us to do that. But um, but there is a uh, an untold pressure on some of these medical staff to to let things roll sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a commercial company, isn't it? Yeah. And it's actually it was just for Kona, wasn't it, on North America? It's not in Europe, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a it's a North American brand. I don't think you get that brand over here. So it's naproxen. So you can get that drug over here, but I don't think you get that brand in the in the UK that I'm aware of. Yeah. What about you, Mike? Have you seen anything else on the uh, social media that's uh, made you uh, prick up your ears this week? Yeah, I ch I chuckled at a little post. Oh, it's a number of posts actually. They haven't really developed into more than the odd person asking questions within forums. But these people looking at doing an Ironman next year, potentially for the first time, and the question of which event should I enter, Bolton or Wales, which one's easiest? Uh, and I can't help thinking is, is it's such a negative attitude. No Ironman is really easy. No endurance event should be that easy in reality. Some, some can feel relatively easier. But I think, you know, there should be the decision on which one should be made, which, which race to enter should be on far simpler terms or far more um, sort of controllable things like distance from home, financial time constraints, things like that, than, than which one's the easiest one. I'd be worried if an athlete ever came to me asking which is the easiest race to enter. Now, again, if, you, if you've done a few of them and you're looking at a PB and you're trying to be strategic in choosing a race, then that's different. But when you're a first-timer and you're trying to find an easy race, I, I don't. it doesn't sit well with me there. Yeah, yeah, Ian? Yeah, it's an interesting one for me because this idea of it being easier, um, well, they're both challenging courses anyway, but um, you would think that, or you would, like, as Mike said, you'd be looking to perform faster on the one that might be relatively you know, less challenging, but it, you, it still should be just as hard. You should be looking to perform you know, to the best of your ability, which you assume would uh, make it just as hard regardless of which of those two courses you selected. So, yeah, there are many uh, 
preferable criteria that you could be selecting courses and in terms of you know it, it might be a better place for the family to go to in terms of having a holiday as well the crowds the atmosphere there or just trying different courses so you get experiences at different places um so yeah i think if people are looking for an easier event as their first one then maybe it's going to be a little bit of a shock for them in terms of what the ironman event is and what <laughs> what lies in where um, I suppose there might be a certain percentage of people who are genuinely, you know, their swim and bike fitness is at the level where they are genuinely concerned about that they're not going to make the cutoff. Yeah. Bike. And we saw at Ironman UK this year, there's a perfect example of nearly 20% not making the bike cutoff. So there is a large percentage who it, they should be genuinely concerned about how hard the course is because they're actually not going to finish. You know, so uh, that's a good point. But it's not uh, the focus again. Isn't on it being easier. It's, it's about is is it an achievable goal for me to get round within that cutoff? And I suppose you can look at it, and you know, it's easy to say. Well, to be honest, if you're in the if you're in the twenty percent who missed the bike cutoff, then you you should have just trained harder. You know, that's what the challenge is, and you should have trained harder. But but I think within that twenty percent, there there's probably there's a percentage who just need to train harder. And there's probably a percentage who actually they were right on the limiting. I know a couple of people. I know a lady in particular who were uh, who's uh, who comes to our shop regularly, and she's um, she worked really, really hard, and you know, and trained really hard for the event, and just missed the cutoff. And it wasn't that she'd slacked and not bothered to train. That was just on her limit, mm. you know. So I suppose with yeah, with UK there will be a, a percentage of people, but. It might send people selecting courses based on which is the easier course. Um, it's as what you suppose what you rank your Ironman performances on. I mean, what the, the first thing that people ask is what time have you done for an Ironman, isn't it? So it, it, you know when when they, when they talk about Ironman performances, no one kind of asks. It's hard to relate where you finished in your age group on a particular course or what time you did on a particular course. It's the easiest way to relate how good someone is is what's your PB. You know, if you want to know how good a marathon runner is or a 10K runner or a, a, a triathlete, for an Ironman specifically, people tend to just say, don't they, what's your, what's your personal best? Yeah. And I know people who've done, you know, maybe very fast times at Barcelona where, let's say, they turn a blind eye to packs riding around together. Um, and, uh, and you could argue that, you know, they've gone an hour plus slower at another course and probably that was a better race to them. You know, but yeah, I guess it's just... We are in that world, aren't we, where we're, everybody's looking at us, and especially more so with social media, everybody's watching us, and we feel pressured that we have to have to look good. You know, we have to look good, have to look successful, have to look like we're getting results, don't we? And, and people start picking courses based on that, I suppose. Yeah. Now, it's, it's a good point, though, isn't it, that, uh, you know, when you think about the different age categories and some people, you know, in some of the higher age categories, that will be right on their limit in, in getting around. And no matter how hard they train, and we know that people vary in their responses to training as well. So some people do respond very well to training, and other people don't. So you can train very hard, but still, that yeah. could still be right on your limit. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, you wouldn't then call it easy. <laughs> yeah, and it's that change now as well. I mean, we were talking about this with someone only a couple of days ago. This whole change of, of how Ironman. When I first started triathlon, it was 30 years ago when I started triathlon, there were people who did triathlon and there were people who did Ironman and it was just, the norm was to build up over quite a few years, you know, when you, sprint and standard was the thing and then you would gradually maybe build up and you'd do a half Ironman at some point and then you'd do a full Ironman, but there's a lot of people jumping 
you know, there's, a, there's a very high percentage of people have never done a triathlon before. And, and we, we, we met some last night, didn't we? Yeah. And they've never even done a triathlon or they, they can't swim and they, they've already entered an Ironman for next year. Um, and I, there's nothing particularly wrong with that, I suppose, if they just want to get round and finish it. But, you know, we all know that they're never going to produce what they're truly capable of by entering an Ironman next year if they've never even done a, a triathlon. You know, we've... Uh, I mean, it just even simple things they don't even understand, like open water swimming. You know, around here, it's you, you probably can't really open water swim till the end of May if it's uh, on average. So these people have never swum open water until the end of May and they've got an Ironman six weeks later. Yeah. You know, so they get a few open water swims in and they've got a 3.8K Ironman swim six weeks away and they've never been in open water in their lives. So it's just, uh, that you know, all those kind of problems, that's just the, I suppose that's just the, the, the trend now. People just... It's the norm for people just to, I'll do my first triathlon and make it an Ironman. There's just much greater awareness of these events now. I think it, it, you had to get into triathlon probably at one time before you became aware of what an Ironman was. But yeah. now probably most people that you speak to, um, if you, you know, would have some awareness of what an Ironman triathlon was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So people are just seeing that and, and thinking they'll go straight to it. Yeah. yeah. I was and it's what might so? I say it's tough because part of you is loving that the sport has grown so much. You're loving that there's so many people being active. You're loving that the barriers have come down that people think these things are achievable. Uh, but there's still a sensible way to do it. Yeah. Even even if you jump straight to it, there's a sensible plan and approach to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, and it's defining that difference between doing it and doing it to the best of your capabilities. And maybe some people are not interested in doing it to the best of capabilities. They just want to get around and do it and just to say they've done it and enjoy the day. And that's the, if that's their plan, then that's fair enough. That's up to them. But if you want to do it to the best of your capability, you cannot decide now that you're going to do an Ironman next summer. If someone who's never swam before and all, it's just, it's just impossible. It doesn't work. It takes two or three years of consistent effort at least to get to a, a decent, you know, decent start point. But, um, yeah, but I guess maybe that's something people don't understand, is it? If they've never done triathlons before, they wouldn't have that experience to understand that they need a good few years run of it to, to be able to do well. So, um, yeah. With that said in mind and not wanting to give any spoiler alerts away, you might need a big stiff drink to watch the Alfie Thomas documentary. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's a big guy, isn't he? So he's a big lad to get around an Ironman course. Yeah. So he, yeah. he he starts off pretty much as a non-swimmer. Yeah. Six months out. That reminds me of the, uh, I don't know if you've seen anything of the documentary recently on the Channel Swim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought exactly the same yeah. thing. Because they, they were non-swimmers, was it 10 weeks out from from the trying to do it in a relay? That's yeah. a similar thing. But, which but actually crossing the channel. <laughs> Yeah, which actually was the last thing that just popped into my head when we were asking what we've been up to. I don't think we can go the episode without just tipping our hats to Sarah Thomas, who's just on the four-way channel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a phenomenal to, to to get in in Dover and swim to France is is a ridiculously difficult feat. There are still more people who've summited Everest than from the channel, um, but to swim to France, get back in and swim to England and then get back in and swim back to France, and then get back in and swim to England in 54 hours is just... Is it five, five, five that had done it, the three before, but none that had done it before? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the the gen the, uh, one of my friends has done um, a two way, and I know someone's done a three way. Um, but generally, the ones who do the the big ones are either you know almost ex Olympic standard who just go so fast that they just carve through the water and get across in half the time most of us would. Or they're the people who can just stay in the water without getting cold. But Sarah seems to have found the blend of both. You know, she was she was ticking along between 11 and 13 hours per crossing until the last crossing, um, which you know for some relay teams to get across in 11 hours is is a phenomenal achievement. So so um, yeah, that that's one of those events where a lot of good endurance athletes who may not be accustomed to open water swimming probably can't really truly comprehend just what she's been through to achieve that. Um, But yeah, that is, that is phenomenal. And I think you have to tip your hat to the pilot and the boat crew who are navigating her across because fundamentally it's down to them to keep her safe. So, um, so I do know someone who knows her and I'm hopefully going to reach out and get her on, see if we can get her on air to have a chat. But, but, um, But yeah, that is a remarkable, feet of endurance i presume with the with the rules she can't get out can she she has to stay in the water does she or how does it work would you have to get out to confirm the crossing so it depends where you land so yeah. if you land on if you land on a beach then yes you have to exit the water be out of the water completely and i think you've got a 10 minute window before you get back in and start again yeah. you what the normal normal sort of um etiquette is that someone will swim in with you yeah and and you can if you're doing like a two-way they can pass bring things that you can use to put more sort of um, lubricant on and things, but they can't touch you or help you. If you land on the rocks in France, then you can hold on to the rock and sit on the rock, but your feet must stay in the water. Um, And then again, you've got the 10 minute window before you need to go again. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think just the psychology of exiting in France and then having to turn around and get back in that's, that's to me the bit that blows my mind. Um, Having done lots of open water, you know, my longest open water swim was was about 11 hours. Um, and actually, cardiovascularly and physiologically, it's not that taxing if you can keep warm in the water. Yeah. Um, but the psychology of the nothingness of the swim, her emotional roller coaster for that period of time must have just been, she's got a really good blog out as well, where she mentions her nausea and her vomiting. And a period of time within, I think it was the second crossing where she was struggling to keep stuff down. And there was a touch and go moment where the boat crew had sort of said, if you can't get that under control, we're going to have to pull her. Um, And, and, and really fascinating. I think she's, I think she's on Facebook. Uh, She's got a Facebook page, Sarah Thomas, open water swimmer. And she's just put the blog up in the last couple of days. Again, I'd I'd point everyone to that as a, as a phenomenal read just to try and try and understand the nuances of what that, has actually involved um, phenomenal effort. Yeah, I just had this vision of you know swimming across and eleven hours and getting to France and then just nailing a tumble turn on the dock wall and pushing off again. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it, saved a second there, bang straight back. <laughs> yeah, that some, would be some, now that someone would be will do it. Someone Next will time. do it. Yeah. yeah. Next time. Yeah. yeah. Medley. Fly back, breast crawl. We're getting silly now, aren't we? <laughs> well, when you start, if you look at the uh, Channel Swimming and Piloting Federation and you look at their records, then our records for all sorts of stuff, people have butterflied the channel. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. That's what we should do rather than Ironman Wales next year. 
I can't butterfly my bath, leave alone the channel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's time for our guest this afternoon, and we want to welcome to the show Nathan, Th uh, Nathan Ford. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you raced at Ironman Wales at the weekend, and uh, caught a, I was, a few of my friends were racing in the 35 to 39 category, and I was tracking them to see how well they were doing. And I couldn't help but see this name, Nathan Ford, at the top thinking, bloody hell, that fella's going pretty quick. He's doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a job catching him. And, uh, and then I, I ended up tracking you as well because I was tracking those people. Oh. And, um, and yes, you finished eighth overall at Ironman Wales in the first age grouper with a 51 swim, 513 on the bike and a, and a 322 run which is a pretty outstanding performance. So you must be absolutely made up with that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm delighted. And to be honest with you, I really didn't expect to, to go that quick. Um, I mean, my A race this year was Challenge Roth, which was probably eight, nine weeks ago. Um, and since then, I haven't really done an awful lot of training. Um, so I went into, into Ironman Wales with a, pretty much an open mind and just tried to enjoy the day. Um, it wasn't very enjoyable at times, but um, that's the sort of the mindset I had going into the race, um, and it seemed to pay off. Yes, yes. Have you, have you done anything this week? Have you done much this week, or are you just having a week off and recovering now? Uh, well, myself and my wife went out on the bike on the Monday just to sort of spin the legs over for half an hour. Yes. Uh, I find that really helps after an Ironman race, um, just to sort of help aid the recovery. Uh, but since then... I think I went for a one swim this morning, and, and that's all I've done. Yeah. Did your wife attack you on the hills when you went out for a ride? <laughs> she liked the things she does. <laughs> I presume you've got nothing else planned now for the rest of the year. Are you coming into the off season now? Um, well, I've got. I've actually got another race uh, next weekend. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a local race in uh, in Mumble, seventy point three. Um, so I'm going to see, I don't know whether I'm going to do it yet or not, I'm going to see how the legs are feeling, uh, make a sort of a decision end of next week, yeah. uh, and then we'll, we'll go from there. But that's, that's it then for me, that's, that's the last race. Yeah, fantastic. So could you just tell people a little bit about your background and, and, and how you actually managed to get into the sport of triathlon? Yeah, sure. Well, well I started off as a swimmer. Um, that's my background. I come from a swimming background. Um, I've been sort of competitively swimming ever since the age of maybe five or six. Um, my parents threw me in the pool and I didn't look back. Um, what people don't realise, I think, is that I was a 50 metre specialist, if you like. So all the races I was doing was just 50 metres, one length, and that was it, one length and out. Um, I remember my coach saying to me, you need to start doing hundreds and two hundreds. And I wasn't having any of it. It was too far. Um, so to sort of make that transition from a 50-metre freestyle swimmer to swimming almost 4K, I honestly don't know how I've done it or why I've done it. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I, I swam at sort of a quite quite highly competitive uh, level. Um, I represented Wales a few times. I just missed out on the Commonwealth Games uh, 2010. Um, I think it was 200ths of a second I missed that, that time by. Um, and since then, that I made the decision after that 2010 Commonwealth Games qualifier to sort of knock it on the head. Um, and, and that was it, really. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So, um, 
What year did you stop swimming? I stopped in 2010, um, so just after the Commonwealth Games trials. And when did you then, did you do anything after 2010 or did you drift into triathlon then or did you have a lapse where you weren't doing much? Or? Oh, I, I didn't do anything for probably about five years actually. Um, I, was, I was still keeping fit, I was still keeping myself fit, I was still going to the gym pretty much every day. Um, but I didn't really have a focus and something to aim for. And I've always been the competitive type and I, I missed something to, to sort of a focus to have. Um, so I'd heard of uh, this event Ironman um, in 2015 uh, and I decided to enter Ironman Austria in 2016. Uh, I did a couple of sprint triathlons before that um, and then I went straight into this Ironman in Austria and th the main reason for me doing it really was to, uh, my grandfather passed away um, in 2015 so I wanted to raise money for uh, brain tumour research so that was the main reason why I did the Austria Ironman um, and to be honest since then I've, I've just been hooked and uh, I've just, just, just loved every second of it. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, so what's next for you for next year? Have you got bigger plans for next year? You go back to Wales next year or? Uh, I don't think I'm going to go back to Wales next year. I've done it twice now. I did it in 2017 and obviously last weekend. Um, so I think, I think I'm, I'm done with Wales now. I've, I've done what I, wanted, what I want to do um, and I'm over the moon with my performance. So next year I've entered Ironman Copenhagen uh, in August. Um, which is a pretty fast course, so hopefully I'll try and get sort of close to a PB round on that course. Um, but at the moment, that's oh no, sorry, I tell you, right, I've uh, I've entered Challenge Samarin as well, um, yeah. where I qualified in Challenge Roth. So that that's the first race of the season for me, Challenge Samarin. So you're just looking to do more races now, explore, just enjoy it, see a few different cities, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, it's it's nice to sort of make a bit of a holiday out of it as well. Um, and you get to see so much, so much of the world uh, doing triathlon. Uh, you can go anywhere you like, really, um, and, th and there's a race there. So it's, it's, it's nice for myself and my wife to, to go away and sort of make a bit of a holiday out of it. And she's, she's got into it as well. Um, so she's done Ironman Lanzarote last year, off 12 weeks of training, which was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so it's, it's, just, just, it's just the enjoyment factor for me now, and I, I, I'm loving it. Yeah, amazing. I'm just curious, so when you came from a swimming background and you were a sprint swimmer, and you said to you, that might have been a tough transition for you to go up to a more endurance-based, when you've been, in essence, a sprinter, because most people who are naturally sprinters tend to be fast twitch, yeah. power. So from that sense, you wouldn't think that endurance, if you've made it as a top-level sprinter in any sport, yeah. you wouldn't think endurance would be a natural thing, would you? No, and it, it definitely wasn't a natural progression. Um, I mean, when I was uh, when I was swimming as a sprinter, I was I think I weighed in around about ninety two kilos. Um, so I've lost almost twenty kilos since then, and it wasn't ninety two kilos of fat. It was you know uh, a bit of muscle as well. So um, I did a lot of strength and, and power work in the gym, and my race lasted for twenty two seconds. So to go from a race for from twenty two seconds to you know, eight and a half, nine hours, it's, it's, uh, it, it was tough, but um, I plugged away, um, kept the consistency in the training, uh, and I managed to, to get where I am today. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, 51 minutes, it's not that shabby. 
you know, it's all right. Yeah, <laughs> it's not bad. I, I was a little bit disappointed, to be honest, with the swim. Yeah. Uh, two years ago, when I did Wales, I went 49-something. Yeah. So I was hoping to be around the, sort of the same mark as that. Uh, so I was a little bit disappointed to see 51 when I when I came out of the water, but it's it's not too shabby, like you say. Do you find it difficult to adapt to open water? Do you find like you, you're a, a a good open water swimmer compared to pool swimmer? You know, some people tend to be better, don't they? They perform better in open water than they do in the pool and seem to excel. Do you, do you struggle with it, or do you enjoy it more? Or no, I, I don't seem to struggle with it. I think uh, because of the, the the style of my stroke. Um, I had quite a quite a high arm en- uh, arm entry when when I was swimming when I was sprinting, so I sort of moved that onto open water. So my stroke, I think, I think suits open water swimming, so, and I really enjoyed the open water swimming as well. Uh, it's, it's, it's it does get a bit monotonous swimming up and down the pool, you know, staring at that black line at the bottom of the, at the bottom of the pool, and it, it just breaks it up a little bit. So I, I do prefer swimming in open water. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you tra- still train with a swim squad or do you just train with a tri-club when you're swimming? No, I train on my own. Uh, I, I do everything on my own. I, so I swim, bike and run uh, completely by myself. Um, and to be honest, I prefer it that way. Uh, I find sort of with maybe with some of the tri-clubs, people are at different levels. Um, so I like to just get in, do what I've got to do and get out. Uh, I don't really swim that that often, maybe two, three times maximum a week. Um, but that's all I need to do to, to take over. I, I, I know I'm not going to get any faster than sort of 49, 50 minutes. I, I'm there or thereabouts now on every race. Uh, so it's just the two, three sessions a week and, and, and that'll do me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious as well as a past swimmer because um, I, I see a, a, a big difference in the way people train at swimming clubs compared to triathlon clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering what... It, you know, when you're the kind of sessions that you do and the distances and so on, and, and you know, what you see in triathlon club swimming, maybe what triathletes should do a bit more of, uh, where they should focus more of the time. You know, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, from my point of view, uh, I swim, like I said, two or three times a week. I'm doing probably around about 4K per session. Um, and it's all specific stuff to, to Ironman. All my training is focused towards Ironman. Uh, whether that's swim, bike or run, it's all focused to, to that distance. Um, but what I have found with some of the athletes that I've started coaching, they sort of rely too much on all the swimming equipment. Um, I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but one of the guys that uh, I was coaching before, um, he was telling me that he'd put a pole boy in for a swim session and he'd use it the whole session, every session, every week. And he was relying so much on that pole boy. As soon as I said, take the pole boy out and just swim, he, he couldn't do it. Um, so I think um, you've got to have the sort of specific sessions you've got to do for, for Ironman racing, obviously. Um, and th- that's where my training is focused specifically on, on, on the Ironman distance. Yes, yes. Now, I know um, uh, Mike and Ian were reading your blog this week. And they've collected a whole host of questions that they wanted to ask you. Um, so I'm going to come to uh, I'm going to come to Mike first. Thanks, Mark. Uh, hi there, congratulations. Thanks very much, Mike. Appreciate it. Um, fantastic to finally get a taff on the show. Level out these Anglo sort of Welsh things. I've grinned through gritted teeth for weeks. Congratulating all these English people are doing really well. So, so one up for us this week. 
Um, the first thing, so before I start going into the planned questions, one question from your chat with Mark that jumped out was when you said about making the transition to try and you dropped the body weight and have seemed to have seamlessly transitioned to this longer stuff. Yeah. Since that's happened, have you ever sat, found yourself sitting wondering about if you dropped body weight as a swimmer and changed the distance you were swimming, if that would have had an effect? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I haven't really thought about that because I was so focused on sprinting and that's what I enjoy doing. Um, again, all my focus was was on that 50-meter freestyle. Um, so I, I didn't really think about it. My, I remember my coach saying to me, um, there's a, there was a 4x200 freestyle um, race in the Commonwealth Games that Team Wales were sort of trying to put a team in for. Um, and I tried training for maybe six, eight months for the 200 freestyle to try and get a spot in this relay. And it, it just, I just wasn't enjoying it. Um, it was, it was too much training. I was sort of doing 60, 70,000 meters a week. Um, and I, it just wasn't enjoyable. So I, I sort of knocked that on the head and I went back to, to sprinting. And I think that's, um, that was, that was my best event, the 50 freestyle. Sorry, can I just interrupt there? 60 to 70,000 meters a week, did you say? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> that's a good reference point for when triathletes and um, talk about swim volume. I don't think they often understand how much volume swimmers do. Yeah. I mean, the, the longer the distance, uh, the sort of the 800, 1500 meter swimmers, they're, they're going 80, 90, even 100,000 meters a week. Um, it, it's, it's pretty crazy, really. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's what you've got to do to, to make it to the top. Yeah. It's a lot of tumble turns. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. So, again, Mark alluded to it. Um, we were reading your blog, fantastic blog. Um, I think it was is the honesty of the blog that shone through. Um, so from my sort of injury and training point of view, the things that I zoomed straight in on were, I loved the fact that you just reduced your training load post Roth. Yeah. Um, which seems to now, by, by obvious results, have just given you this period of recovery. Other, other than just chopping down your training, was there anything specific you were doing to try and recover in time for Wales? Uh, it, not really, no. It was, just, it was just basically just cutting down the training and listening to my body. Um, and I think that's so important um, if you're racing Ironman. You've got to listen to your body because you're not going to get the quality sessions in if you're fatigued or if you're tired. So I was just listening to my body. I knew after Roth I put in... Uh, big effort for that race um and i needed i needed some downtime so it was probably two weeks up to two weeks after the race i i hardly did anything at all uh then i slowly started getting back into the training um but again i didn't do uh, i didn't do an awful lot and that carried on all the way up into wales yeah fantastic and then when you came to race day and you, and you started tearing up the course in tembe I really, I really zoomed in on the points you were chatting about just racing free, relaxing, enjoying it, almost taking that pressure off yourself. And again, you mentioned that you then listened to your body in the race as you did in training. Yeah. We are always discussing the use of tech and technology and how it sometimes governs people rather than helps them. Yeah. And, and you mentioned in the blog about being pleasantly surprised when you were looking at the tech of yeah. how fast you were going and, and so on and so on. Um, just was interested in your thoughts now after the race on, on 
where you sit with tech during the race and how much you might focus on it or, or distract from it in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I work the power uh, in training uh, quite a lot. Um, but during a race, I, I tend to go off feel um, and how I'm feeling on the day. Um, so I, I did, in Wales, I did make a conscious effort of not looking at, at, the, at the Garmin to see what sort of power I was producing or what speed I was going um, until probably it was about four, 40, 45 miles into the race. Um, and I was feeling awful on the bike, uh, but I had a quick look down to see where I was um, and the average speed was pretty good. So I wasn't going as bad as I thought I was. Um, so yeah, during races, I, I tend to just go on, on how I'm feeling. I do keep an eye on heart rate as well because I, I think it's quite important. You don't want to sort of overcook it too early. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just going on feel, and that that's what works for me. Absolutely. And then you mentioned sort of how much you um, understand. You're explicitly aware of your competitors, their strengths, their their abilities. Who was going to pressure you at certain points? Is that a strategy you approach most races? Uh, it is. I do tend to have a look at the field to see uh, to see who's racing. Um, and cause, because Tenby is such a local event for me, I, I know a lot of the athletes that are doing it and I know their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, and it's good to work off, off the other people as well so I can sort of gauge where I am in the race. Um, so, yeah, I, I did have it in the back of my mind, not so much leading into the race because I didn't, I didn't really think about it. Um, I did, like you said, I didn't want to put any pressure on myself. Uh, there was nothing really riding on the race for me. Uh, but during the race, I knew the, the faster swimmers who were going to come out the water first. I knew the strong cyclists and I knew the, the runners that were going to sort of be hunting me down on the run as well. Yeah. And we mentioned that you are a coach and you've got a growing coaching business. How do you balance your training and the training of others? Certainly now, now we know you've got a full-time job as well. Yeah, so I, I work full-time uh, around about 40 hours a week. Um, and it's just it's just on a balance. I don't I don't take on too many athletes, um, just because it's not fair if I take on you know ten fifteen athletes. I can't give them the time that they deserve and the time that they're paying for. Uh, so I've got a handful of athletes at the moment, um, and it, I seem to have enough time to juggle my training, and I can focus on on what they've got to do as well. Um, and we had I think it was seven athletes that competed in Ironman Wales. Um, and they all did extremely well. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really enjoying it at the moment. And uh, I'm really happy with the performances that they all put in. Um, and, and they all seem to be happy as well with, uh, with, with how I'm working with them. And since starting coaching, do you feel any added pressure to perform from a setting and example point of view? Yeah, it, it, there is a little bit, yeah. Um, I, I mean, a lot of people sort of look up to you and, and look at your race results. Um, and I think that plays a bit of a part in if they choose you as a coach as well. I know a good athlete doesn't necessarily make a good coach, um, but people do look at your look at your results and think, oh, well, he must know what he's talking about if he can do these sort of times. Uh, so there is a little bit of pressure um, in that point, in that perspective, but uh, I try not not to let that affect me um, or affect the way that, that I coach coach the athletes either. And then the final couple from me was. So I reached out onto my Facebook page when we knew you were coming on and asked any of the guys who follow me if they had any questions they wanted to ask you. So we got two from those guys. Pete Matthews asked a great question. Did you prepare, um, now we know that you um, had an A race for Roth, but do you, how would you approach the specifics of a course? 
So, for example, with the uh, bike course of Wales, is there anything you would do to prepare differently for a, a course to others? Uh, well, it's, it's ideal for Wales, really, because it's only sort of 45 minutes away from my house. Um, and I think the best way of getting used to the course and getting a feel of the course is just go and ride the course. Um, and I must have ridden the course 20, 30 times in total. Um, so I know uh, the course like the back of my hand now. Um, and that plays such a massive part on race day. Uh, you know where to sort of ease off. You know where to put the put the power down. Um, and you know all the sharp corners and, and technical descents. Uh, because it is quite a technical course. And it's a very hilly course as well. Um, in terms of training, uh, I always try to train specifically for the course that I'm going to race. So for my A race this year, which was Challenge Roth, I tried to um, mimic what the course was like around my area um, in terms of elevation and if there's any long climbs, uh, long descents, things like that. So I try to sort of replicate the course that I'm doing on a local local uh, point of view. Yeah, and I think it's always important from that one, there's the, there's the physiological benefits of being able to work on that course, but from a psychological aspect, I'm ex-military and one of the famous um, Latin sayings when translated from one of the branches that I worked in was that knowledge dispels fear. So the psychological aspect of understanding what's coming up and when and how you can cope with it is, is a massive factor in performance. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Then the you just take a lot, lot more confidence uh, from, from knowing the course. I mean, I, I was speaking to a few athletes in Tenby and they'd never done the course before, uh, but I'd always recommend if you can, get out and just, just recce the course. Uh, it doesn't have to be a hard effort. Just go, even if even if it's in the car, you don't even have to ride it. Just just go in the car, just go around, get a feel for it, and just just know where everything is. Yeah, I think I think most Tour de France teams these days they ride in the course way, even course way before they were just to know what's coming up. Yeah. Um, and then the final question comes from Terry Francis, who was really interested in knowing what your off season looks like. I tend to take uh, a bit of downtime in the off-season, um, so maybe November, December. November especially, I probably won't do any training at all. I like to take a big break, maybe four or five weeks of just completely completely off, absolutely nothing. Um, it just lets your body sort of recover and recuperate. And also your mind as well. You could just take your mind off triathlon because it's a long season. Um, and I think it's a good thing just to take your mind off triathlon and just, just focus on, on other things like family going out, eating what you want, drinking what you want. Um, so, and then you come back into training maybe sort of December, January time, and you've got a, you've got a new lease of life and uh, you're ready to sort of attack that season again. Yeah. And I think, again, just everything you've answered so far, just it just oozes common sense. You just have a really logical, common sense approach to your own performance and how you coach people. Um, and I think that's the take-home that anyone listening should really try to, to to grab and grasp from it, is that listen to your body, some common sense stuff, and you probably will achieve what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, it, it, at the end of the day, it is all common sense. I don't try to overthink things when I'm coaching or when I'm training myself. Keep things simple. Um, I know you've heard it probably thousands of times before, but it's, the consistency is so key to training. Um, and that's one thing I really do live by is keep the consistency in your training uh, week in, week out, and you will see the benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. I'm going to hand you over to Ian. He's got some questions. Thanks for your time.
Thanks very much. Hi, Nathan. Uh, well done again from last weekend. Uh, good to speak with you. Yeah, I've got a few more questions, mainly from the the blog, but a couple of others that have just sort of come up while you've been chatting with Mike. Um, the first one actually um, picks up on something that uh, I think it was Mike's first question actually around the nerves that you were experiencing because you said, oh, you didn't experience in this occasion because uh, you didn't feel any real pressure going in. I just wondered how that contrasted with, with normal racing. So saying, Roth, did you feel pressure there? Is that something you normally experience in a big event? Yeah, I think it, I think it's natural to, to feel a bit of pressure. And in Challenge Roth, I, I was very nervous. Um, I don't tend to get nervous sort of the week leading into the race. But as soon as my alarm goes off in the morning, that's when the nerves kick in. Um, and I realise, oh, right, this is it. I've got a race now. I've got to try and perform. Uh, so that's when it tends to come in. Um, but yeah, like I said, in Wales, I didn't really feel any pressure any nerves whatsoever. Um, I remember being, I put it in my blog actually, I remember being on, on the beach ready to start um, and I was speaking to a few of the other athletes and I said to them, I, I, it doesn't even feel like I'm going to be racing an Ironman. Um, that's how relaxed and how calm I was. So it, it was it was really good and I, th I think it, it helped a lot as well in my performance. Uh, and is there anything you take from that in terms of going forward? Would you, are there things that you plan to try and do to sort of mimic that or recreate that in future or do you think that's unrealistic when you're in a different situation no I, I think i think yeah i think i've taken a few things away from it um just sort of staying away from um everything that's going on in the lead up to the race um and that's what, exactly what i did i went down on the friday night uh, the race was on a sunday morning i registered racked my bike and i just relaxed in the, in the bed and breakfast that we were staying in um just at a had a meal out and just stayed away from everything that was going on. Sometimes you can sort of get caught up in, in a lot of, of what's happening um, on the weekend of the race. And that does sort of uh, put the pressure on you a little bit and the nerves start kicking in. So I just keep my keep myself to myself, keep away from everything. Um, and that seemed to, seemed to work. No, it's a good point. Uh, Mark and I did uh, a talk last night and one of the things we were talking about was managing your environment and the importance of doing that. And I think it's something that people don't always focus on enough and you get into a race weekend, it can get very exciting and uh, you, you sort of throw yourself into the excitement of the weekend, but that can build a lot of pressure and also be quite draining itself. So managing your environment, I think is important, isn't it? As part yeah, of prep. Um, and any specific psychological techniques that you use normally in terms of dealing with that pressure if you're in a different situation? Um, not, not really, no. Um, like I said, I just, just try and keep myself to myself. My wife plays a, a massive part in that as well. She sort of keeps me down to earth and, uh, she, she keeps me away from everything that's going on. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's sort of a, a team effort, I suppose, um, in terms of that. So she's, she's really good. She helps me out all the time. Um, and the other thing as well is that she does everything for me in the lead up to the race. So she'll get all my kit together. She'll, sort all my nutrition out. So I don't even have to think about anything apart from racing, um, which takes a huge weight off my shoulders. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I also I can't thank you enough for that. Now, I think that came through in the blog as well, in terms of the importance of your sort of social support from your social group. You were sort of looking for that out on the course, Maybe particularly on the bike, probably when you said you weren't feeling that good. Is that something that you normally see as part of your that's important to performance for you. Yeah, definitely. Um, and like I said, in Wales, I, I know 
so many people that live around here and that are doing doing the race, um, and even all the supporters out on the course as well. Uh, just seeing that familiar familiar face in the crowd and having that crowd support, even the people that don't know you, you've got your your bib number on, they're shouting your name. Um, it just gives you such a massive boost, um, and the, the support in Tenby is just like like nowhere else. I've never experienced anything like that before. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's a massive help. Yeah, it was interesting to see how you'd sort of you you were drawing upon that and seemed to be using it purposefully to sort of you know uh, maintain your confidence, perhaps when you weren't feeling you know 100% at the time. Um, there were a few challenging situations that seemed to come up in the race as well. So. So there's uh, well, first of all, you sort of mentioned earlier about being disappointed about the swim when you came out. So that was that could have been a slight knock. Um, you also um, there's some problems in the swim in terms of getting round some of the swimmers when you were catching some of the other swimmers on the second lap. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's always the same really in terms. Yeah. Honest, the, the first because it's a two lap course. The first lap is is pretty plain sailing. You've got clear water. There's no one in front of you. But as soon as you get into that second lap, you've got all the slower swimmers that are still on their first lap, and it gets so congested in there. Um, but it's, it's, I know it's the same for everybody, but it does make it it does make it a bit difficult. So you're sort of weaving in and out of swimmers, trying to get round, um, and it's it does get quite busy in there. Um, and I think I, I think my first lap of the swim was around about 23, 23.50, something like that. So my second lap was a lot slower. Um, and I think that was due to the fact that there were so many swimmers in, in the water at the same time. So anything you do in that situation when you've got things that are potential roadblocks to deal with that? Uh, there's a couple of others, weren't there? Did you drop a bottle as well? You had to run back down the road and collect a bottle? Oh, yeah, I, I, I put um, a bottle of water in because there's a transition run in Tenby that you've got to run from the beach and it's a kilometre up to the car park where the transition area is. Um, so I put a bottle of water in my an extra transition bag just to uh, get the sand off my feet before I put my trainers on to run up uh, to the transition. I dropped that bottle and it started rolling down the ramp. So I had to go sort of 10, 15 meters down the ramp to get that bottle and then run back up. Uh, so that was a bit of a mishap as well. Um, I don't think you're ever going to have a perfect race in the Ironman. Um, you can get quite close to it, but I don't think you'll ever have a perfect race. And it's just little things like that that go wrong that are just a little bit annoying. But, but they didn't seem to derail you from what I read in your blog. You seem to just sort of be able to sort of move on and carry on with the, the race quite well. Yeah, I think you think you just got to get on with it when, when things like that happen. Um, there was other situations. I think I, I got stuck behind an ambulance um, that was out on course as well. Uh, and I just couldn't get past. But it's just one of those things. You've got to just try and move on from it. And, and leaving the transition with your baggy. Say again, sorry? Say leave transition with your blue bag. You had to run oh, back to transition. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't bring that one up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I was so used to taking the transition bag with me because I did it in Roth. Yeah. I just had that in the back of my mind. So I was running out towards my bike and I just flinged my blue bag over my shoulder. And then a volunteer was shouting, no, 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 no. Go back, go back. And so, yeah, back into the transition tent. So I lost probably another minute, minute and a half from doing that as well. Uh, which isn't ideal. <laughs> but, but you managed to put all those things behind you and carry on pretty well. Anything you do in particular to deal with those situations? Or No, I, I, like I said, I just tried to put that to the back of my mind, just think, right, I've done that now. There's nothing I can do. It's done. Just get on with the race. Um, just focus on what's ahead of you and just forget about what's behind. And um, 
You mentioned, uh, obviously you mentioned earlier you didn't have any real clear plan or, or targets, but you did seem still quite interested in sort of what other athletes were doing. So it seemed as though you were still, were you just, were there those sort of goals emerging out on the course in terms of winning the age group or did you have that in the back of your mind if you were feeling good that you, or in that position you might still go for it? Yeah, I mean, I went into the race and I didn't really have a race plan or a target in my mind. Uh, but I'm such a competitive person that I, I just don't want anyone to beat me. Um, so it was pretty much spur of the moment thing when I was out on the course. Uh, I knew who I had to sort of um, chase down on the bike because there was a swimmer ahead of me on the bike. Um, and I knew a couple of other athletes as well that were going to be out to beat me as well. So uh, it's just my competitive nature, I think. I just, I just want to beat everybody that I'm racing. Um, and I've always been like that. Um, I, I, I'm not the most confident of people. Um, I mean, going into a race, my wife always says, like, you need to need to work on your confidence, um, and it's something I'm, I really struggle with. Um, even though I, I do beat a lot of people that I know, I still think that they're going to beat me on the day, um, and that psychological thing just keeps playing over and over in my mind. Um, so that's something I know I need to work on for, uh, in the future. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the last one from me really is I'm interested in how you evaluate performances. So following Roth and following this one, do you go through a, uh, is there a clear plan of evaluation and how you look at your races and would you apply that the same in your coaching when you're evaluating other people's? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I always look back. I, I leave it a couple of days before I sort of look back at the, the power data um, and the files that I've got saved from from the Garmin. So I, I go back and see um, what sort of power output I was putting on the bike, um, my run splits, for example, um, and my swim splits from from Tembi. So I've, I've, looked all, I've looked over all of those. Um, and it's good to, to look over them just to see where you've gone wrong and what you can improve on for the future. And that's obviously something I, I, uh, I do with my athletes as well. Um, I'll go over each each of their races individually um, and see how they felt, um, where they felt they could have improved, if they had any mishaps, what went wrong in their race, what they could have done a lot better. Um, and I think that's important to, to move on and to learn from your mistakes. Um, so yeah, I, I always look back uh, at my race and to be honest, in Challenge Roth, I, don't, I didn't really do anything wrong. Um, I think there's, there's another blog on my website where I put Challenge Roth, the perfect race. Um, I said before, you never have a perfect race, but this this was as close to it as, I, as I, I'm ever going to get, I think. Um, but even then, I look back to see uh, my, my files and my data um, to see if there were any, any areas I could improve on. And uh, physiologically, based on that, how close do you think you got last weekend to Roth? Or you know, which would you consider to be physically the better performance? Can you say that? Um, I think I was better in Roth, to be honest. Um, I did have some some bad patches on the run in, in Tembi. Um, but again, I didn't train specifically for that course. And it's such a specific course. Uh, the run is so, I think there's 1,700 feet of elevation on the run. Uh, it's just all up and downhill, where Challenge Roth is pretty flat up to the last 10K. Um, and that's what I trained for. So um, I think my performance was better in Roth. Um, but obviously, I was over the moon with my with my performance in Wales, up to the sort of the end, maybe 10k last lap of the run, uh, where I did hit some 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 dark patches and 
I ended up walking a little bit on the run um, and then stopping stopping for a couple of minutes. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't the perfect race by any stretch, but I'm, I I can't argue with the, with the result. I, I'm over the moon. No, no. I think that's very, obviously a very honest uh, appraisal because obviously you've had a very successful one, and sometimes it's difficult to sort of separate the actual physical personal performance from how you've done compared to other people, isn't it? But obviously you've done that quite well, but it's still an amazing physical performance given that you had Roth only six, seven weeks beforehand um, and you trained specifically for that because obviously those hills is something you would normally want to uh, prepare yourself for. Yeah, and I was quite, I was quite surprised as well, to be honest, um, with the time that I came out, I came out with as well. Uh, I, I didn't record the swim um, on my Garmin, which I usually do. So I didn't really have an idea of what time my swim was until after the race. Um, and like we, we were talking before, um, my Garmin, I didn't look at the Garmin on the bike until 40, 45 miles. Um, and it's just going on the run on feel. Um, and then I had a quick interview at the end of the race and the, the woman that interviewed me was saying, oh, you had really good splits throughout the race. And I said, oh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know any of my splits. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm obviously delighted with, it, with the result at the end anyway. Yeah, that's great performance. Um, well, there are all the questions from me. I um, suspect Mark might have a few after listening to, to ours, but I'll pass back over to him. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I've just got some general coaching questions, really. I mean, you know, the, the, when people listen to the podcast, they always want to know kind of what kind of sessions people do. And uh, yeah. uh, I'm just curious, from, you know, from your own, you say you work in a 40-hour week and you have to fit everything around 40-hour week. Are you the kind of person with your bike and run training? Do you go for more volume or do you like the shorter but more intense sessions or do you do a mixture of both? And is there any sessions which you feel personally are key for you need to do some long stuff or you feel that you need to do shorter, high-intensity stuff? Yeah, I try, I try to mix it up. I do um, the best I can. Uh, like I said before, I swim maybe two or three times a week. Um, and I try to get 4K per session. For those swim sessions. Um, one of the key sessions that I like to do in the pool is sort of four 1,000 meter efforts at just just uh, slightly quicker than race pace um, with maybe 20, 30 seconds rest in between each one. Um, and I like to get sort of four to five of those in in the lead up to, to, to one of my main races. Um, on the bike, I try to mix it up as much as I can uh, from you know, long, steady, steady rides to uh, five-minute efforts on the turbo. Uh, I, do, I do quite a lot of, of indoor training as well, um, and I think that breaks it up a little bit, a little bit more as well. So, um, yeah, with, in regards to the intensity, I do uh, probably, I'd probably say seventy percent of my training is quite low intensity, and then sort of twenty to thirty percent of my training is, is high intensity, um, and it's just, it's just what works well for me. Um, but obviously what works well for me doesn't necessarily work well for anybody else. Um, but I, I found, I think now what works, what works well for me in my, in my training. Um, and I'm going to just stick to that. Physiology naturally, can you generate a high amount of power or do you feel that your endurance is your strength or, you know what, it, do you feel as you train, you need to focus on, on, on something, you know, in terms of your, your own strengths and weaknesses, do you think it's more endurance or do you think it's your power output? 
Funny enough, I think it is my endurance now. Uh, I think I've trained my body so much over the last sort of four or five years um, that my endurance is my strength. Um, coming from a sprinting background, you half expect me to have uh, sort of a good power output. Um, but that's something I think I can improve on quite a lot. Uh, I focused mainly on the endurance side of things um, and I've seen huge benefits from it. So I think my strengths at the moment uh, is, is, is the endurance, um, but there's, there's always room for improvement uh, and I, I'll, I'll always, always carry on to try and improve that endurance as well. What's your longest ride and longest run? What kind of distance are you doing on your long rides and your long runs? Uh, my longest run leading into Challenge Roth was 22 miles. Um, and that session was at race pace as well. So um, I'd go out, I'd do a, a little warm up to start with, and then I'd go straight into a 22 mile run at race pace. Um, and that, that worked it just, for, just for confidence uh, more than anything, just to know that I'm there or thereabouts with the distance um, and how I'm feeling at the end of that session as well. So yeah, 22 miles was my longest run. Uh, I think I got up to about 120 miles on the bike. Uh, but that was uh, just a steady aerobic ride, um, and yeah, that that's, that was pretty much it. That's the, the longest the longest sessions that I did. Yes. What about uh, nutrition? Do you have a, a certain plan that you follow? Do you keep it simple, or uh, or do you just tend to uh, just, just switch from one thing to the next between race to race? Or no, I try to stick to the same nutrition plan um, on every race that I do. Uh, it's taken a lot of experimenting. Uh, with different supplements and different nutrition brands. Um, but I think what I'm using now uh, works well for me. Um, so I try to stick with the, the same nutrition plan uh, for every race that I do. Um, and it's, it's, it's paid off now. So uh, I'm, I'm more than happy with, uh, with my nutrition side of things. What kind of, you know, are you just taking gels, bars? What kind of volume of fluid do you take? Do you, do you take salts or and how much carbohydrate are you trying to get in? Yeah, I do. I do take salts because that that is something I've uh, I've struggled with in the past is cramps, um, especially coming out of the swim for some reason. Um, I always cramp up in my legs coming out of the swim. Uh, I don't tend to cramp much on the bike or the run. It's just it's just being in that water and getting out, and that's when I start to cramp up. So, uh, yeah, I do take on salts. Um, I try to stick to around about seventy to seventy-five grams of carbs per hour on the bike, um, and then sort of coming into the last maybe 10, 15 miles of the bike. I stay off the solid foods because I use uh, energy bars on the bike. Um, stick to gels on that section and then the run um, is just gels th throughout the run and that's it. Um, obviously when, when, when it gets tough then you're taking on uh, coke at the feed stations um, and, and energy drinking on the feed stations as well. Yes, <laughs> pretty solid stomach. Because, of course, this is a, the big thing that you get with Ironman, isn't it? If you go on a, a Facebook page, post Ironman, all you see is people who've had stomach problems. And I've got my nutrition wrong again. And I'm sure it's just a case of the fact that, you know, the body's probably just shutting down and rejecting it because they're tired. But uh, do you tend to have a pretty good iron stomach and you can take stuff? Or do you uh, suffer from the Ironman stomach problems? No, I, I tend to be okay, to be, to be honest. Um, I haven't really had any gut issues in an, in an Ironman race before. Um, during Wales, I was sick uh, a few times, but um, I think that was just taking on maybe a couple of gels too quickly. Um, but apart from that, yeah, I, I don't really suffer from uh, from any from any gut issues at all. No, I'm, I'm quite lucky. Cool, cool. So 
looking forward to next year then? Do you any, uh, what's your goal for Copenhagen? Um, I'd like to, to PB in Copenhagen. So I went 8.43 in Challenge Roth. So if I can get under 8.43 in Copenhagen, then I'll be, I'll be pretty chuffed with that. So that's, that's the main focus for next year, is trying to get a PB. Um, I've entered Copenhagen. I'll probably try and get another race in towards the end of the year. Um, another sort of fast course, if I can. Something like uh, like Barcelona, maybe, um, which is a nice flat and fast course. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the main goal for next year, is, uh, is to try and get that PB, try and get that 8.43 down uh, as much as I can, really. Yeah, I'd just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, have you, are you just gone into the 35 to 40 category? Uh, what, what's your age now? Yeah, I've, I've literally just gone into it now. Yeah, this is my first year, 35, so I'm 35 now. Well, so you've got a good few years then. Yeah, so I've got four or five years in this, in this age group. Yeah, all of that 40s are going, oh, thank <laughs> 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 it's, it's, it's a tough age group as well, to be fair. It's, um, there's a lot of good athletes and individuals as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I find it difficult in the 30 to 34 age group as well. It's, uh, it's, it's such a competitive age group. The sort of 30 up to 45, there's, uh, there's so many good athletes, so it's, it's really difficult. But I had this conversation with the guys that I was following in that, who were in that category, and I was saying to them, it's just amazing how, I mean, that is the toughest category. You know, the 35 to 40, and the 30 to 35 to some extent, but the 35 to 40 just seems to be unbelievably strong. And I think with the first five or six, we're all under 10 hours, weren't we? Yeah, that's right, yeah. A couple of years ago, anything under 10 hours would have un undoubtedly put you on the podium. Yeah. And, and you, you see that right across the board. And I remember doing Ironman UK a, a few years ago, and um, in like the 40 to 45 category, if you were doing 10.30, you were on the podium. And then suddenly this one year, there was like a half hour shift. Yeah. Where the first two were under 10 hours and third place was just over 10 hours. And 10.30, 10.40 had been good enough to be on the, po on the podium in previous years. Yeah. And it seems, you know, that people are just obviously staying with the sport as well and they're just moving up categories. But the strength in that from, uh, you know, from, from like 35 through to the 45 to 50 category, the strength and depth is just unbelievable. The racing is incredible. Well, I mean, eighth overall, you know, beating pros, and that's it just shows you, doesn't it? You know, how, how strong the age groups are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're just getting stronger and stronger. And uh, in Ironman Wales, like you said, anything close to 10 hours would get you easily get you on the podium. Yeah, there's, there's people going well under, well under 10 hours now in, in Ironman Wales. So, yeah, yeah, the competition is fierce, it, it really is. Um, but it's, it's so good for the sport. Um, I mean, t people that are going fast and putting pressure on you to go faster, it's, it, it can't be a bad thing. Um, oh, and I on it. I think that's, that's an interesting point as well, how you, you, know, you can look at in like the past in history of, I remember when Paula Ratcliffe ran 2.15 for the London Marathon and suddenly every other female runner started going under 2.20. Yeah. And when someone sets the bar at 2.15, every, everybody was trying to move towards it. So you had no female runners going under... 220 and then she runs 215 and then they're all running to 220 yeah. and when you've got that target what will happen is with the times that you're setting that everybody else looks at it and you know i know guys that were doing 10 and a half to 11 hours who were realistically thinking you know i'd like to go to kona yeah. and it's just no you you know not even under 10 hours you're not going to be guaranteed now oh, so no. you, you know you've and and 
but everybody's readjusting the targets. And I find that fascinating as well. Is that's where the bar is. Everybody, everybody trains to hit that bar. If the bar suddenly comes down, then everybody adjusts the training because they don't need to get as be as fast now. You know, so you, yeah, everybody definitely moves on. The whole the whole age category move on when you get a couple of guys really pushing it forwards. Yeah, and I, I think I think it motivates uh, motivates everybody as well to to push their training that much further because they don't want to get left behind. Uh, so if people are seeing the results of sort of nine forty five, nine fifty in Wales, they think, right, I've got to up my training now if I'm going to be able to compete with these guys. Everybody motivates everybody else, um, and that's what I love about triathlon. Um, it's such it's such a good sport, and it's such a motiva- motivation for me. Um, uh, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, super, super. Uh, Mike, anything from you? No, no, fantastic listening, Nathan. Uh, massive congratulations again, and um, just tell everybody where they can read those great blogs of yours. Yeah, so I've got a website, uh, www.nathanfordtriathlon.co.uk. Uh, I try to put a blog out after every race. Um, I, I don't. I should probably get on top of it more, to be honest, with, uh, with the other things on the website because there are uh, race results and things like that on there as well. Uh, but the blogs are the main main focus for the website for me, um, and people seem to seem to enjoy reading them. I get nice messages. Um, after when people have read them, so uh, yeah, it's, it's it's good. I'm enjoying it. And is that the same place to visit you for coaching? Say again, sorry. That's the same place that people can get in touch with you regarding coaching. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, I've got uh, my email addresses on there, um, and there's some information about my coaching as well on there. Uh, so yeah, if if anybody has any any questions, then yeah, they can reach me via the website. And I'm also on uh, social media, Instagram and Twitter. So Anything, anything through there is uh, is fine. Super. Anything from you, Ian? No more questions. Just to say, you know, thanks for coming on, Nathan. Some really interesting material there. I'm sure there's lots for our listeners to be interested in. And uh, just wish you best of luck next year for St. Marin and Copenhagen. Uh, good luck with PB. Thank you. Cheers. Right. Yeah, it's been fascinating talking to you. As just to, yeah, just back on what Ian just said. Then you know, I hope you were. Go on to beat that PB in Copenhagen next year. I'm glad you're not in my age category. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, best of luck for next year. And uh, maybe we'll see you in a couple of years back at Wales. Yeah, maybe. I'm not writing it off. Um, It's such a a brilliant race to be part of. Um, And you can see why why it sells out so quickly. I mean, it sold out by Christmas last year. And I think it's going to be even quicker this year. So if you're going to get in for Wales, then I would seriously recommend entering when the entries come out on Monday uh, because it will sell out in a couple of days maybe even even a week absolutely well enjoy your 70.3 next weekend if your legs are up for it (laughs) enjoy your uh, your month downtime you certainly deserve it have a great winter and again just thanks very much for coming on the show it's been great to chat to you oh thanks very much I really appreciate it thank you cheers much Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD SportX. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the Endurance Coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com where you can find a sports injury specialist near you.
Speak to you soon. <laughs>